Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and yes, I am watching mediocre Christmas rom-com movies while keeping an eye on the slow-moving, incompetently executed, yet nonetheless seditious coup being attempted by the Republicans, while doing everything I can to build support for the Democratic candidates in the Georgia Senate runoff elections that will determine control of the U.S. Senate and have a profound impact on the quality of life for tens of millions of people. And the eyes of the world are definitely on Georgia, with everyone from Oprah to Lin-Manuel Miranda to Barack Obama and many, many others raising money and awareness for the candidacies of Reverend Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff and the other groups doing work in that Georgia runoff election. It is hard to overstate the stakes in that election, and that'll be the focus as well for us in this episode. We'll be talking about what's at stake, the likelihood of a Democratic victory, what it will take to win, and what happens if we don't win. And while we won't have Oprah, we will have someone who the Zoom event with Oprah, and that is Ensei Ufat, Chief Executive Officer of the New Georgia Project Action Fund and a key architect of the political revolution in Georgia. She'll be joining us to talk about how Biden won in Georgia, the work they've been doing the past several years to really till the soil to increase the voter uh, universe there, what it's going to take to win again in January, and what we can all do to help out. So joining me for today's discussion is my co-host, Charlene Chang. Charlene, have you uh, paused to note that it's actually December already? And I suppose the darkening days at 4.30 are a little sign of that. Hey, Steve. Yeah, the darkening days definitely help remind me that it's winter. and But my mind keeps going, what happened to the whole year? Like, yep. like uh, 2020, it just is like some sort of time warp. I, I still, part of my mind is still stuck on March 17th, like where just some other clock just got snoozed mm-hmm. and paused and uh, is waiting to be turned on again. But yes, it is December. I know this because I have a child and Christmas lists are getting longer and longer by the day. But it also means that, you know, like you said, like it's very clear, you know, that it is the Georgia runoffs are happening, and it's amazing with all the email that I'm getting, updating me what's happening, and in my circle, very a lot of excitement about the runoffs that it feels more like the middle of an election year, you know? It's right. like, it's hard to kind of reconcile the two that we're winding down the calendar year, and yet this ramping up of this very key election. Yeah. And all the work kind of just really ramping up. So this is a, it's a very interesting time. And I'm just glad that this is what we're focusing on and not on some other results that could have happened in November where we would have to face four more years of the same leadership, non-leadership that we had had. So I am really excited to talk about Georgia today and Democrats there, folks on the ground who are helping to flip the script in that state So today, I wanted to let our listeners know that we're introducing a new segment, very exciting, that we'll be bringing in from time to time, and we're calling it, Don't Even Get Me Started, (laughs) 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 because uh, lots of narratives and stories that we read out there or pundits out there that are saying things, I know it sets you off, Steve, sets me off, and that we just kind of think like those are baseless claims and they get repeated and people believe them. So we're here with this segment. We're going to unpack mainstream pundit talking points and narratives that are out there in the news. And most of the time, those are anchored in myths and like sentiments, emotions. They're a lot of times fact-free, data-free. 
And we are here to offer the inverse, fact-based analysis that will tell you about what's really happening in U.S. politics and why, and as always, as much as possible with a race-conscious view. So today, I thought we would talk about changing the narrative on the electoral impact of activists calling for defunding the police. And so, Steve, the narrative coming out of the Democratic Party right now definitely is that these far-left activist cries for defund the police are what ended up costing the Democrats in down-ballot races last month, that that's the primary reason and primary cause. And uh, even this was this was pretty big in the news, even for President Obama. He came out, he was being interviewed, they asked him about it. He said he found the defund the police phrasing. He had issues with it, or he didn't totally agree with the phrasing. He called it a snappy slogan. And that sparked a lot of controversy and conversation pushback on Twitter. People had different feelings about it. So Steve, I wanted to ask you, what are people getting wrong about this on the macro micro level? And how should we be looking at this instead? Yes. So don't get me started. Right? <laughs> um, and I am going to write about this my column in the nation that will be out um, next week because I actually tried to get out spreadsheet and not just the hot takes on Twitter and whatnot. So let me just say a couple of things about this, right? And so first is that, well, first is that the difference between a movement and a political campaign. And so, you know, it's, it's we, how quickly we forget what prompted this demand, right? And so when people talk about this, I just, I keep thinking like, well, what is the proper response to a policeman putting his knee on the neck of an unarmed black man until the life is choked out of him? I mean, how polite are you supposed to be when something like that actually happens, right? And so we've lost track of the connection to that, but that's the role of a movement, is the movement is supposed to inject the urgency and the intensity of what's actually happening in people's lives and put it front and center so that we can actually get the attention of the whole country and, and of the, the population at all. And so that's a different thing than running a political campaign. And so it's incorrect to be drawing that connection between what the movement's demand is and what the slogan should be of an actual um, election. So that's just one thing that I wanted to highlight. And the other thing is this thing about no, nobody ran on defund the police. The one person who actually ran for Congress actually saying defund the police was Cori Bush, um, who ran in uh, Missouri. And she won. And so this notion about <laughs> there are all these people, just the, those political you know, suicide to actually be doing this is just really unfounded and not based in fact. So another thing about it is that, again, it's the interplay between a movement and a campaign is that it's actually working, the, the demand is, right? There's a study that Brookings did that showed that hundreds of millions of dollars have been reallocated away from the police and towards more community-based efforts around public safety. In Los Angeles, San Francisco, Minneapolis, Baltimore. And that just give you one example of how crazily militarized our police had become. There's a 2014 headline from the Los Angeles news station. Los Angeles school district returns grenade launchers, keeps armored vehicles, and M16s. School district. And so that is what we had gotten to in terms of militarizing our cities and even the and then our schools. So this idea of defunding the police would be like, yeah, maybe we should return the grenade launchers and the M16s and hire some more you know, community-based workers who work with people. So that's really what the, the, the demand. So see, you've already got me started. All right. So that's just <laughs> by way of background. 
to the particular point, and this is what I'll be highlighting in my nation column um, when it runs next week, is that this is a question of fact and fiction and math and myth. The myth is that, oh, we got attacked for saying around the slogan of defund the police, we got attacked being socialist, and then we lost a number of seats in the House of Representatives. That's not backed up by the math. Every single Democrat, so Democrats did lose a number of seats, something like eight to 10, something like that. Every single Democrat who lost increased their number of votes by 25% on average over the 2018 numbers. The problem was that the Republican vote increased by 40%. But the notion that there's all these votes that were lost because of these slogans is not at all supported by the data. And so the big takeaway of this election is that far more Trump supporters than we knew existed in this country came out in droves to vote to defend the white supremacists in the White House, and that their views are anti-Black Lives Matter, anti-immigration, pro-white is right, by and large. And so no amount of saying we're going to, you know, we're not going to defund the police or we're going to distance ourselves from that sentiment was going to win over those people who were coming out to defend Trump and everything that he stood for. The approach, the thing that we have to do is to inspire people who are pro-racial justice, pro-multiracial democracy, get them to vote in ever larger numbers. And that is, in fact, what happened that enabled us to defeat Trump. And that was the key. And then lastly, ironically, even the person who was most uh, vociferous about this, Abigail Spamberger, the senator, uh, congresswoman from um, uh, Virginia, who just won in 2018, she was all passionate on this call with the other, you know, Pelosi and the other Democrats about all these attacks on us and defund the police, et cetera. We should never say those things again. She, well, first of all, she won, right? And so that's, you know, that there's that piece. Her opponent increased the vote for the Republican vote by 53,000 people. And that's what made her race super close. But she increased the vote by 54,000 people. And it wasn't not even just her, actually. It was the work of groups like New Virginia Majority, Tram Win, a lot of these other community-based organizations got people who actually believe in racial justice to turn out in ever larger numbers. And that, in fact, is how she won. And that is the fundamental takeaway. That is what is fact and not fiction. And that is what people should do, is they should actually learn to count before spouting off with these opinions. And there you go. That's what happens when you get Steve Phillips started. <laughs> yeah, so. That's our first Don't Even Get Me Started segment. Thank you so much. Okay, Steve, so turning to Georgia, just wondering if you can frame things up for us and kind of give us an overview from your point of view, like what, what are the state of things right now in Georgia going into these runoff elections on January 5th? for the two Senate seats. Right. So just on that front, just to set the stage for everybody, right? So that these two Senate seats in Georgia, both of the both of the incumbent Republicans are up, will determine the control of the U.S. Senate. The Democrats win both of them, then there'll be 50-50 split, and then Vice President Kamala Harris will be the tiebreaker, and Democrats will have control of the Senate. And just in terms of what that means for our country is just, well, for one, just the, the, the millions of people who are you know, suffering from the consequences of the, the pandemic, the economic fallout from the pandemic, and the whole issue of democracy and voting rights, right? We could actually pass a Voting Rights Act. We could uh, actually make uh, DC a state where we'd have two more senators, two more black senators within the US Senate. And it's just, we could actually reform the Supreme Court, actually, if people actually had the gumption to do that. So just the stakes are so, so enormous. And so that's why the whole world's attention is focused on Georgia. And so we'll talk with Ensay about that in in more detail, but just to frame it up, it's all about voter turnout. And so particularly in the context of 
you know, an ongoing pandemic and the holidays is how do you get people to come back out to vote? And that's what the whole election can be. So not even really worth looking at any polls or polling data, which do, which do show a very, very competitive race. But as we saw with Stacey's election and then with uh, Biden's election, that Georgia is a very uh, closely contested state, very narrowly uh, divided. And so it's who can get more of their people out to the polls. And that's going to be the work of the next several weeks leading up to the January 5th election, both through absentee voting, for early voting, and then for voting on election day. Is can we get more of our folks out than they get of theirs out? And that's just going to be a very labor intensive because, you know, there are more obstacles in the way of uh, people of color and poor people to be able to cast their ballots in terms of, you know, child care and all the, you know, the working multiple jobs and all the barriers that are in their way. So we have to be able to have well-funded, staffed organizations to do the methodical, painstaking work of contacting people one by one, making sure they have their ballot, making sure they have their plan to vote, make sure they get out and actually turn out. And so that's the battle of the next several weeks. And if we, in fact, do that and do that well, then we should be able to actually win those races. It's not going to be easy and it's not going to be a big margin. It'll be close, just as the you know, Biden won by 12,000 votes. But that's what's at stake, and that's what we're looking at going forward. I am definitely going to be like crossing my fingers until then. And uh, I've I've looked at some of the poll numbers, and they look so close. It just seems like it's definitely one of those cases where every single vote counts. Like every additional person they can get out. I feel like telling everybody I know if they know anybody in Georgia, call and make sure that they vote. Yeah, no, it's going to be super, super close. And it's been, you know, that, but that's been the trend, right? Obama lost Georgia by 200,000 votes without even contesting it. The margin in Stacey's race 2018 was 50,000 votes. And then Biden just won by 12,000 votes. And so it's super close, but we've got the numbers if we can do the work to get our people out to vote. And then hopefully not too many shenanigans on the other side, mm-hmm. although... Well, there are going to be a whole <laughs> blank ton of them. So don't we just have to prepare ourselves. But that's, why, that's why it's not incidental or accidental that what Stacey did after the election in 2018 was to create an organization called Fair Fight, which could fight voter suppression. And so there's, if, if nothing else, we have deep expertise in Georgia on how to fight voter suppression and a lot of experience around all their tactics and how do we counter them. And so with that, let's... Turn to our conversation with Ense Ufat, who's one of the key people in Georgia leading this work. And she took time out from their very, very busy effort to win those runoffs to have a conversation with us. So let's turn to that conversation now. Ense Ufat is the chief executive officer of the New Georgia Project Action Fund. She was born in Nigeria and raised in southwest Atlanta. And she holds degrees from Georgia Institute of Technology and the University of Dayton School of Law. She and her work in Georgia were featured in the documentary, And She Could Be Next, that aired earlier this year and highlighted the work of key women of color in U.S. politics doing amazing work. And with that, welcome and say. Well, that was very sweet. <laughs> like, I, that woman sounds like an interesting person. <laughs> that woman sounds like she I, I rocks, like, and she does. Right. She sounds like a boss. <laughs> Total boss. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you for making the time. We know how crazy things are. And it's so funny doing these podcasts with people who you've known, right? And we we had pointed out that you and I first met back when you were at the was it American Association of University Professors. 
Yes. Um, oh my goodness. And that was almost 10 years ago, wasn't it? It was. It was 2010. Um, and it was, there was a, 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 a march on Washington, but it had a, a special name. Uh, you were working to organize of the movement uh, from labor to voting rights to civil rights in 2010 uh, for another march on Washington. Um, also known as being the secretary for Ben Jealous when he was president of the NAACP, even though I had, that was not my actual job. But, um, <laughs> yes. uh, now the backstory emerges. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the, yeah, at the time, I was a lobbyist uh, for the American Association of University Professors and trying to figure out how we bring this sort of small but mighty professor's union that doesn't quite fit into the labor sandbox into this broader movement work and you were trying to raise money and you were very good at it because you got some out of us and we did not have any (laughs) (laughs) well it's all the scale of all that is relative particularly what we have to what we're dealing with now and then we have mentioned about how you know uh you just did do a thing uh with oprah right around the georgia runoff so what was that and how was that yeah, so um, Oprah has uh, uh, an activation called Own Your Vote, and I think periodically it's been she's been hosting conversations with candidates and activists and movement folks throughout 2020. These virtual conversations, and so you know the last conversation of the year we focused on what else Georgia and the Senate runoffs, and it featured myself, um, a woman who you all definitely know. Tasha Brown mm-hmm. um, and Stephanie Brown James from Collective Pack. Uh, and it was lovely. We had a nice little chat conversation about the role of movement, the impact that independent, black led, grassroots political organizations are having on the current state of American politics. And, you know, just some basics like what people need to know uh, headed to the November runoff elections and Kamala Harris, pardon me, Vice President-elect Harris. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, the likelihood that she could become the most consequential vice president in the history of the institution, that if we have a 50-50 U.S. Senate to bring in the president of the Senate, the vice president of the United States, to break ties on some key legislation, that we could see her transform the office. Oh, and then Oprah paid for me to go to college. Wait, what? what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, by the way, what is that? Well, yeah, I, uh, my senior year in high school, there was a show about young people, young leaders overcoming adversity and doing cool things in their community. So she took one kid from every state and paid for them to go to college. And I was the kid from Georgia. Oh so God. she pulled up. <laughs> so her producers pulled up the um, the clip, the oh. photo of us from the show 22 years ago. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> oh my God. Uh, yeah, and it's funny because I went to math and science high school. I went to an engineering college, uh, university, and Oprah bought me my first computer. Oh my um, and now I run the largest independent like voting rights 
organization in the state of Georgia that leverages data and technology uh, to expose voter suppression and to drive up turnout of black voters and young voters. Um, And so it was very much a full circle moment because I showed up on my first day of college with no computer uh, at at the one of the at the top three one of the top three engineering colleges in the country. Wow. Uh, I I, I showed up on my first day of college with no computer and with a typewriter. (laughs) But that's because they had not yet invented the Macintosh. But yeah, I mean, again, very much a full circle moment because, again, it is because of um, how adept we are. And by we, I mean New Georgia Project and New Georgia Project Action Fund, how adept we are at data analysis, reading into the numbers um, and because we are organizers and storytellers, we're able to translate what we're seeing in the data um, and use those insights to inform our get out the vote programs, our voter registration programs. So while they're constantly leveraging um, false accusations against us, we can continue to do our work with extreme confidence because we know the programs that we run and we know that we can demonstrate that these are nothing more than partisan attacks and that we, like nothing that we do is illegal. Right. So yeah, so let's let, let's get into that um, uh, here in, in, in a second, right? So just to, to frame it up a little bit, right, in terms of the History of, you know, I, I didn't even realize that we were just doing this episode. I've actually known you longer than I've known Stacey Abrams. And so that's an interesting yeah. uh, <laughs> wow. reality. But, you know, as I've, you know, shared with people, and, you know, we've heard, you know, Stacey put together this plan back in like 2011 when I got connected to her. Actually, Ben Jealous connected me to Stacey back in 2011. It's like, you to help my sister, et cetera. And then, so she was traveling the country in 2012 with this. PowerPoint. It was a multi-year, data-driven, very data-rich. I guess <laughs> Stacy had a computer plan on how do you build power in Georgia and do that by increasing the vote of people of color. And then I, well, you'll tell me a second exactly where I think it was 2014. She says, I think we should create this organization that'll actually increase voter turnout. Um, and that was uh, New Georgia Project. So, can you just give us a little bit of background about what you guys have done, and then how that has unfolded in a way that Biden actually won the election. It was hilarious to me in an election and his victory night, he's all like, and we won Georgia. That wasn't even part of the plan, right? And so, <laughs> so what have you guys been doing over these past few years and how has that come to fruition in terms of being able to deliver uh, a victory for Biden that has now been affirmed through three different counts of the vote? So a couple of things. One, people need to know that The browning of America is a reality. You've written about it, right? Mm -hmm. People are experiencing it. And nowhere is that browning happening more quickly, more acutely than across the South and Southwest. And so Georgia will be the first state in the deep South with a white minority. There will be a multiracial, multi-ethnic plurality uh, in a state like Georgia, which challenges everything that we know um, about how to win races in a place like Georgia. 
what that also means is that the demographic shifts that are happening in Georgia, not only are they happening very, very quickly, but they are also massive and they are unique. So unique in that um, while the browning of America is in a lot of instances in most states is attributed to Latinx uh, immigration, naturalization, and just the people having like the population growing. One of the key contributing factors to the browning of Georgia is what political scientists and demographers are referring to as the reversal of the great migration. Right. So great migration between 1920s, 1970s, Black Americans fled the South, fleeing racialized oppression, racial violence, seeking economic opportunities. Um, that's why Black folks in Chicago can trace their roots to Mississippi. Why black folks, black in, New folks York, in Cleveland New York. can trace yeah, their right. roots to Mississippi and Alabama, as my family can. Absolutely. On and on and on. And now those folks are moving back south and they tend to be college educated and higher income. And so that's what we are experiencing right now in Georgia, a massive, very, very rapid, unique demographic shift. And it would not have been enough. So what I've been taken to say, I've taken to saying that demographics is the fire and organizing is the accelerant. So I was introduced to Stacey by a mutual friend, um, one of my dear, dear friends, Lauren Girl Wargo, who said, uh, if you're coming from home for the holidays, I'd like to introduce you to um, this state representative. You guys really should talk. And I was such a jerk. <laughs> I was such a jerk. <laughs> It was like, uh, you know, I'm really just here to see my family. <laughs> I don't really have time to meet with some state rep. But we eventually met. She was lovely and brilliant and just made me excited about my hometown. Um, I know we sat down and she laid out the big picture vision for the New Georgia Project. And my initial response was, this will never work. <laughs> wow, wow. <laughs> this will never work. They they won't let you get away with it. Mm. They won't let you do it. And so she was like, so who is they? <laughs> let's exactly, like, let's delineate who they are so that we can have a plan for them. And, you know, again, I, I, I tell people I had 33 reasons why the New Georgia Project wouldn't work, and Stacey had 34 reasons why it absolutely would. And so you fast forward to today, we have re- registered uh, half a million young people and people of color to vote in all 159 of Georgia's counties. And I say it that way because for folks who don't know Georgia, um, people tend to think of Georgia as Atlanta and not Atlanta, (laughs) right? Um, And they have no idea how deeply complex uh, the state is that we have seven major cities and seven like metropolitan areas. When people think about rural voters, it is often code for white conservative. Um, And Georgia completely frustrates those traditionally held sort of assumptions about um, or or, or conventional political wisdom. There are 20 counties in Georgia that are majority black and most of them are rural. Hmm. Um, If you were to imagine a prom sash going across the state of Georgia, right? So from the northeast down across the state, across the southwest, that is what is known as Georgia's rural black belt. And those are the battleground counties in what is America's newest battleground state. 
And so we work it. We work that turf. We build relationships. Uh, we are working to connect the dots. We're working to establish ourselves as credible messengers. We are working um, to professionalize the community organizing that's happening. Uh, we work to add some muscle to the informal infrastructure, the progressive infrastructure that already exists on the ground. Um, we work to create job opportunities. I'm, I'm almost as proud of the fact that we have hired, trained, and deployed 3,000 homegrown activists uh, and organizers and canvassers um, who have been a part of an organization with a culture that's focused on sort of winning. Um, and not those moral victories where we live to fight another day. We're talking about actual W's on behalf of Black families and, you know, wins that we can defend beyond one election cycle. So uh, registered half a million people, hired, trained, deployed, 3,000 organizers and canvases. We maintain seven offices across the state of Georgia. Uh, we build our own technology. Uh, we build video games um, that are designed to demystify campaigns and government mm. and how it works and how it's all connected. Um, and yeah, like the idea is to have a permanent presence in the state that uh, to, to, create, to be a political home for progressives, for young people, uh, for people of color in the Deep South, um, where this work can live, uh, again, beyond one election cycle. Because ultimately, we see elections as opportunities to test our power and to flex the power that we're building. But we build those power, we build that power in between elections. That's just also incredible. I'm just taking it all in and just, I, I just have, when you were talking about the video game, I was picturing like Fortnite for, you know, electoral power. One hundred percent. We've had a Fortnite tournament. Listen, are you um, kidding? I was just joking. No, no, no. Absolutely. Not only that, there were like a thousand people that participated. That's um, so creative. I can't believe it. And we also have um, Twitch the Vote. So Twitch is the streaming platform. It's like YouTube, but it's the preferred platform for gamers because the graphics are better is what I'm told. Uh, but Twitch the Vote is an NGP activation on National Voter Registration. Day, we registered 9,000 people to vote in one day um, through our Twitch the Vote activation. We brought um, esports players. These are professional video game players. This is beyond um, uh, Pong. Is that correct in terms of the... Uh... <laughs> Indeed. For those Indeed. of us of a certain generation. Although, I, I'm definitely down to do a classic game tournament. Uh, I think that that could bring in a particular demographic. Maybe not Gen Zers, but uh, listen... I think that culture and gaming, um, you know, we use them as on-ramps to bring people into the conversation. On election day, we had our third Twitch the Vote activation um, and it drew half a million unique viewers. Uh, we had, uh, you know, several people who are on the top 40 right now, rappers, DJs, entertainers, all focused on Georgia voters, all focused on young voters and first time voters, and really hoping to underscore the importance of them in this moment and the power of their vote. Think about it. Think, think if you were an 18 year old Georgia voter, and this is your 
election, you see like how the rest of the country, the media can't keep Georgia out of their mouths. They've literally flipped a state with their first vote. And so the, I, you know, the Bible says you train a child in the way that they should go. And so I'm really, really excited to see what kind of super voters, what kind of lifelong yeah. voters, these first time voters, um, these first time Georgia voters will become. Right. That's what people aren't really grasping the election. It's all this talk about, oh, you know, all these, you know, Trump voters, et cetera, et cetera. They're missing the youth part and what's coming on the horizon in terms of who these folks are and what their pieces. So. As I wanted to jump in here and just I'm so like really jazzed to peek into like all the various very creative, awesome things that you guys have done to produce the results in November. How does this work apply to run the runoffs currently in the Senate runoffs and what's happening in terms of get out the vote efforts and any kind of creative efforts um, with the runoffs given, uh, especially I'm curious, given uh, the, the relatively short window compared to the longer timeline you had for the right. um, November elections. Well, they said what, before enlightenment, you chop wood and carry water. <laughs> After enlightenment, you chop wood and carry water. Um, and so that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to chop wood. We're going to carry water. We knocked on 400,000 doors on the march up to the November general. After deep, deep consultation with public health experts and OSHA experts and our board and our staff and canvassers and volunteers and designed a program that we're pretty proud of that's allowing us to have high quality conversations with Georgians of color and first time voters. And we're gonna do that again. And this time we're shooting for a million doors by December 30th. We have made millions of phone calls uh, in advance of the November general. We're gonna do that again, again, on a compressed timeline. I think that the difference in the program that we're running on the March to January is a couple of things that we are going to step up our voter protection and our election protection work. During the um, during November, uh, during early voting, um, we probably covered on average about 20 to 50 polling locations, you know, high precinct, high priority precinct locations that have had a history of voter suppression, a history of long lines at the polls, a history of possible violence. So during early voting, it was 20 to 50 polling locations that monitored. And on election day, um, it was 200. In the runoff, we, during early voting, we're going to monitor 100 polling locations a day and 300 on election election day. Here's why. While there were credible threats of violence against voters uh, headed into the November general, there was also voting in 49 states and Puerto Rico and DC and Guam and never, shout out to Guam. But on January 5th, it's just us. It's just Georgia. And those credible threats of violence have not gone anywhere. And so we're going to lean in and we're doing more um, sort of de-escalation training. And it matters to us. It's an essential part of our plan to win because I feel like it is the nature of battleground state politics that, you know, elections are decided by one, who shows up and two, whose votes get counted. Mm -hmm. And 
there is very, there are very real concerns about activists outside of the state um, who, you know, are a part of the Stop the Steal protest that we're seeing all across the state. The president and the vice president and their regular trips, the outgoing president, the lame duck vice president, um, (laughs) on their regular trips to Georgia to try to invalidate the results. Um, And it is escalating. That's all so good to keep in mind. I think it's maddening to think that how much work needs to be done and that we need to pay attention to that. But it's the reality and glad to hear that you guys are on that. I think that it's more the stories around Georgia. It's becoming more commonly known about, you know, the the power of the black vote. And like you had talked about, the increasing number of African-Americans moving back to Georgia and impacting each election cycle. I'm also curious about what your organization is doing around the Asian American vote and Latinx voters, what kind of work is happening and how key is it to each election cycle and this, um, let's say in particular, this runoff and, but you also right. talk about who else that. in the, in the ecosystem is doing work targeting Asians and, and Latinos as well. Yeah. So we are in deep relationship uh, with our friends from the Asian American Advocacy Fund, um, as well as the Georgia Association of Latino Elected Officials, it's called Caleo, and Porter Latinx, uh, and Mi Gente. I mean, the truth of the matter is that this, in a lot of ways, still feels like untilled soil. And so we rock with people who are willing to pick up a shovel and get to work. And that is what those organizations are. Uh, A lot of the work that we do, um, our voting materials, our voter education materials, we produce them in multiple languages so that language access isn't a barrier to having this high quality, engaging, fun, interesting, edgy sometimes, um, voter education materials that the Georgia Project Action Fund puts out. But yeah, I mean, again, it's the multiracial, multi-ethnic coalition um, that delivers Georgia for uh, for working people. Um, I think about a place like Gwinnett County, which is uh, the second largest county in the state. It makes a big part of what the North Atlanta suburbs. Um, it is a veritable melting pot. It's like a walking Benetton ad uh, or a mini UN uh, whenever you walk down the street or go to any of its high schools. Um, and that's the future of Georgia. That's the future of America. Um, I will say this, uh, 71% white voters in Georgia voted for President Trump and he still lost. Uh, and I think it's important for people to know and understand that you can win 29% of the white vote in Georgia and still be successful if you are smart and if you are serious and if you are intentional about bringing in Black, Latinx, and AAPI Georgians. Yeah. And then also overlooked is that as people listen to this, now I came of age in the Rainbow Coalition, Jesse Jackson's campaigns, and Jesse always talk about, uh, well, for one, Burt Lance, who was helpful to his campaign, but white Southerners who are progressive and democratic have had to make more of a, a decision and that those are actually people who are, you know, oftentimes more true allies. So the 29 percent should not be should not be overlooked. Um, mm-hmm. So I know that, you know, obviously you need to be get back to the work to do of, of winning this election. Um, so just lastly, you know, obviously there's lots in, of uh, uh, you know, interest across the country around how people can be helpful. And so what are you telling people who want to be supportive 
um, of the work to try to, to try to win these runoff elections. Now we need your pennies. So um, donate to the New Georgia Project Action Fund. This work is super important. It's going to an organization that knows how to stretch a dollar, that has deep relationships, that employs the sort of meat and potatoes, the best practices of community organizing, but also is bold and ambitious enough to experiment with data and technology and apps and gaming as a teaching tool um, that's really thinking about how we innovate around adult learning, but also civics education and civic participation. Also, Again, we are fielding about 1,500 volunteer shifts during the week, a day, and three to 4,000 volunteer shifts on the weekend. And so, and we have the capacity to do more. And so we are about to get very annoying over the next 28 days for Georgia voters. Um, and we need your help in that effort. Uh, so phone calls, text messages. We're even doing, as I mentioned before, door to door. Uh, high quality conversations in person. We're also looking to, again, um, recruit people from around the country to participate in our election protection work. So I, I grew up in Atlanta, born in Nigeria, but grew up in Atlanta. So you know that we were raised on a steady diet of Martin Luther King quotes. And um, one of my favorites is, you know, everyone can lead because everyone can serve. And so there are a ton of ways uh, for people to get involved if they want to help Georgians bring this home. So people can volunteer by going to your website, is that correct? Yes, they can. So you can go to newgeorgiaproject.org or you can go to mobilize.us forward slash the New Georgia Project. Mobilize is this RSVP volunteer platform. Super easy to navigate. Um, and yeah, um, look for New Georgia Project on there. So mobilize.us forward slash the New Georgia Project. And you can sign up for volunteer shift or newgeorgiaproject.org forward slash donate. But yeah, investing in grassroots organizations, investing in long-term organizing, that is how we win. There's no way we could have registered half a million Georgians um, and had the bulk of them show up if we had started in Labor Day, after Labor Day 2020. Yeah, and I, I just want to reflect, you know, back, you know, to you and as well as for all of our listeners, right? Because, you know, I, I, I Stacey told me when she was starting New Georgia Project, right, like years ago, right? We tried to yeah. be helpful in the early stages and just to see what you guys have been able to do in terms of really being able to, as you're saying, you know, that accelerant piece, providing organizational nuts and bolts support to the demographic revolution and making it a real political force that was able to actually flip the state this year. So I just want to, you know, uh, what's the saying in the thanks of a grateful nation, right? You know, reflect back and appreciate it. And I think for the listeners as well, then I mean, probably even for you, because sometimes it's hard to understand the, the greater consequence and significance, right? There's some, there's been these like kind of ran, not random tweets, but individual tweets about like, oh, you know, just imagine if this election were close. Right. And that the fact that we won Georgia, that we won Arizona, in particular, those two have really saved the democracy. Because if, if this were all just about uh, Pennsylvania, the full force of the president with the complete support of the Republicans in Congress, 90 yeah. percent of whom have yet to acknowledge Biden, mm -hmm. would be at play. We'd be witnessing an actual coup. And it's because of the work that you did and the work that so many other people did to flip Georgia has been able to us to frankly withstand an actual coup within this country. Right. 
and it's so, gonna. I mean, <laughs> and our work is not done. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> right. So um, I super yeah I appreciate it, and they are nervous, uh, which is also some. Ex- I think can also explain some of what we're seeing in this moment, right? From yeah. the forty-two lawsuits uh, that they've brought and lost <laughs> uh, to the attacks on America Votes uh, and New Georgia Project. It's all because we're winning. Yeah, and I think yeah. that it may not always feel that way, but people need to know that that's what's happening right now. This is what growth feels like. This is what winning feels like. All right. And we, we, we will let you get back to your winning and we appreciate you taking time out from your work to join us uh, for this podcast. She was fantastic. I'm so glad we got a chance to talk to her. I'm kind of like a fangirl. I didn't want to say anything, but I've long admired her work and been hearing about her work and just excited that I got to talk to her. And it was crazy to hear her story about how Oprah paid for her college. Oh, I know. You, you can't make that up. That's a Lifetime movie special. I was like, who's writing that story? Oh, that is, yeah. you cannot make that up. <laughs> yeah. And that's so funny because I've known and say for you know, a while, I, did see, I learned a lot through that whole conversation. So I'm really glad we were able to do that. So we'll have the links in the uh, show notes for people around how to help New Georgia Project, how to help Irving Warnock and John Ossoff and Fair Fight. And just want to encourage everybody to do whatever we can in these final uh, few weeks leading up to January 5th. So that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. If you'd like to join us in supporting Fair Fight and the whole network of organizations they're working with, as well as the campaigns of the candidates, we have the link listed in our show notes for where your donation can be split between those different entities. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or signing up for our mailing list at democracyincolor.com. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, enjoy the holiday rom-com movies and keep the faith.